Let me ask you to take your Bibles and join us in the book of Ephesians, again, chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. We'll begin reading momentarily in verse 14, 3, 14. I thought it'd be appropriate, we're almost halfway through the book of Ephesians, to summarize what we have heard thus far. So I want to take us back to chapter 1 for a moment and consider a handful of things. The Apostle Paul writes to this church and reminds them in the first paragraph that God has adopted us into His eternal family. That is our new identity. We are not what we once were because we have been joined to God by means of His his power, by means of His spiritual act on our behalf to bring us to His family. He goes on to tell us in chapter 1 that all of that's accomplished through His grace in calling for the sacrifice of His own Son for us. In other words, that it is by grace that Jesus died, not by some requirement or obligation that God owes to us, but it is entirely His gift to us, and that gift is in the person of His own Son. We should not ever get over that fact. He continues and tells us that in addition to adopting us into His family, He has sealed us by His Holy Spirit in order to guarantee our eternal salvation. I think of this often as regards adoption. We all know that adoption is an expensive process, but I remind you that adoption is a legal process that that child once adopted has every right of every child born naturally into that family. That by means of that legal process, that child is sealed into that family. And that there is nothing short of a reversal or destruction, violence if you will, to that legal process that could remove that child from having the same status as a natural-born child. Well, in this case, our sealing in the family of God is accomplished not by legal means on earth that can suffer violence at the hands of evil people, but rather is sealed by the power of God in heaven by means of His Holy Spirit. In other words, we have no reason to be afraid that somehow our salvation is in jeopardy. This is his argument in chapter 1. So he begins to pray in chapter 1. He announces, I'm praying for you, that they would understand the power of God toward them. That they would understand this power. That they would wear this power, feel this power, live this power. They would have confidence in this power because it's not merely the power of man or some earthly authority, but rather it is the power of God. And he concludes chapter 1 by appealing to the fact that Christ was raised from the dead and today sits at the right hand of the Father. And because of that, we can have confidence in His power. He was raised from the dead And we can have confidence that He is the head of the church. He is the head of everything else that God is doing, which is us, which is me and you. 
God is at work in our lives to produce, to use, to, to bring glory to His name, to bring good to ourselves and to others, to advance the cause of God and the purposes of God. And the church is God's plan for all of that. And Christ has been elevated to being the head of the church. Think about that for a moment. If, if I had one child and I had one precious thing that I could put that child uh, in charge of, then I would put that child in charge of that because that's my child. I would elevate my child to the, if you will, the forefront of the thing that's the most important, if you will, the, the most valuable, the most sacred, the, most, the, the thing that testifies to, to my life. I put my child in charge of that. Susan and I have a will. If you don't, you should get one. And in that will, we have said, it all goes to the girls. Not your girls. Our girls. Whatever it is, pitiful as it may be, it's going to the girls. Why? Because they're ours. Think of God. What has God done? He's put Jesus in charge, not of some B-team operation, not of some thing in the back burner, He's put Jesus in charge of the main thing. And what is the main thing in the heart of God, according to the book of Ephesians? It is the church. Jesus is the head of the church because this is the affection of God. We have been bought by the blood of his son. It stands to reason that if he's the purchase price, he ought to be the owner. Then in chapter 2, he turns it a bit, and he says, you know, it hadn't always been this way. At one time in your life, you submitted to another power, if you will, another spirit, not the Holy Spirit, not the Spirit of God, but you submitted to the Spirit, the Prince of the power of the earth. And that Spirit is at work on the earth and the sons of disobedience. And the problem with that Spirit, of course, is that he can only produce death. He cannot produce life. He is a murderer from the beginning. He wants nothing more than to steal, kill, and destroy. And he used to be the power that we submitted to. But there's that precious verse, chapter 2, verse 4. God, rich in mercy, was merciful to us, and it was motivated by his love for us. And accordingly, he raised us up and he has seated us with Christ. He's already told us in chapter 1 that Christ is seated in heaven. And now he has seated us with him. Think of that again. We've been invited into the throne room of God and we have a seat. Think about some event you would like to go to and you say to somebody, you're going to be a little late or delayed or not with the first wave. And you say to somebody, Save me a seat. <laughs> yeah, because when I get there, I want to belong. When I get there, I want to participate. When I get there, I want to be a part of the action. And he tells us in chapter 2 and verse 6 that we've been seated with Christ in order that he might show us even more grace 
in the life to come. How much grace has God given to me already? Well, he gave me his only son. And he gives me his grace day by day by day by day by day. I have no idea how God has saved my physical life even today. Even today. Christ brings it all together, according to chapter 2. He's the foundation for all of it. We're built upon him. We're held together by him. We are his dwelling place, the Spirit's dwelling place. And then in chapter 3, he turns and he says, and God's plan is to involve not just those who historically were his people, the Jews, but God's plan is to involve the Gentiles so that he might bring Jew and Gentile together in a new nation Much is made today even among Christians about the Jewish nation, the Jewish nation, the Jewish nation, the Jewish people, the Jewish people. And I'm not in any way devaluing that. I am simply telling you, friend, that the message of the New Testament is that there is one people. And that people is Jew and Gentile. And that God chose the Jews in order to be the delivery mechanism of the glory of God on earth. That he would have a people who would be peculiar to him in the midst of all of these pagan peoples on the earth. They were like that, but the people of God were like this. And the reason they're like this is because this reflects our God. Our God doesn't do child sacrifice like the Canaanite gods. Our God is not made of rock or wood or he's not served by prostitution like the Greek gods, etc., etc. Our God is like this. Well, what is this? This is these people who are peculiar to God. These people who live their lives peculiar to God. These people who make sacrifices of their personal life, their flesh, if you will, and they restrict the desires of the flesh. They submit the desires of the flesh unto God, and they live their lives as a witness, as a testimony, as a signal to God. And he has ordained that God would do that through his people. In the Old Testament, it is a very narrow group of people. In the New Testament, Christ has thrown open the Holy of Holies, and the veil has been torn, and now God has come to dwell amongst his people on the earth, and he's taken the gospel, the good news that God loves sinners to not just Jewish people, but to the entire world, and that God has ordained that his church be the mechanism by which that is accomplished, that he might build a new nation, not a nation made of dirt, with borders and militaries and economies and kings and presidents and prime ministers and parliaments and so forth, but rather a spiritual nation, the church, so that we have identity with people in Africa or Europe or Asia or Latin America or anywhere else there are people. We have identity with those people, not by means of language or culture, not by means of some sort of physical lineage, but rather we have identity with those people because we have one head. We are one nation, one body, one family. And our head is Christ. He is the head of the church. 
But then as we saw last week in chapter, two weeks ago, chapter 3, verse 10, as God works in and through this church to advance his name on the earth, he is taking the fight. See it again in chapter 3, verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to rulers and authorities in heavenly places. He is taking the fight to rulers and authorities in heavenly places by means of the church. So that what goes on in the church, what goes on in this church, and in thousands and hundreds of thousands, dare we say even millions of other like-minded groups who are meeting across the world today, what's going on there is that Christ is taking the fight to rulers and authorities in heavenly places, and he's doing it through weaklings like us. We are not equipped to take on Satan and demons. We don't have what it takes, but he does, and he intends that through the frailty of humanity, through the frailty of human flesh, willing to sacrifice their own lives in exchange for the life of Christ, that we would demonstrate, that we would portray the majesty and the glory of Christ, and that somehow that fuels the fight. Somehow the grace of God working through me and you in our lives day after day after day after day after day after day in serving our wives and our husbands and our children and our grandchildren and our friends and our neighbors and the stranger in our midst, folks who talk like us and think like us and folks who don't, somehow serving them in the name of the Lord Jesus brings glory to God and fuels the fight. There's stuff going on in the cosmos that we don't know about, but we're a part of it. And engaging even in this room this morning with God and His Spirit and His Word, we are serving God. Don't let anybody minimize the church. There's more going on here than you know, that you could possibly know. So God works through the church, and this, according to chapter 3, verse 11, is his eternal purpose. It turns out this is not an afterthought. The church is not plan B. You're not a secondary agenda. You're the main agenda. You're the main event. What happens in your life is sacred. What happens in your life is significant. Your marriage matters. Your friendships matter. Your business matters. Your relationship with your neighbors, it all matters. The witness proclamation of Christ in this church, it all matters. It matters that you give generously, that you support the causes of God and the work of God. All this matters. Why does it matter? Because this is the eternal purpose of God. It is, it is the height of frustration for me sometimes. To see Christians come to the end of their lives and all they can think about or talk about or reflect on Is, is this. 
You know, we all like to live to be 100 and die in our sleep, right? We all like to be that. None of us are probably going to do that. Instead, we're going to die. We're probably going to die sick. 70, 75% of all people who die, die sick. You're probably going to die sick. And so when you die sick, generally you have a few minutes to think about your life. And if all you can say about your life is earthly things, I want to tell you, God has a whole lot more interest in you than whether or not you lived a certain lifestyle, had a certain house or car or job or reputation. God cares about those things. In fact, he says, if you'll focus on me, I'll give you that stuff. I'll give you food, shelter, and clothing. Just, just look to me. Just hope in me. Just trust in me. Just cling to me. I'll give you all that stuff. I take care of birds. I'll take care of you. I take care of grass and flowers. I take care of you. If all you're thinking about is this life, then this chapter Ephesians chapter 3 is for you. Because he wants us to have boldness. Look at the end of verse 12. Regarding Christ, this eternal purpose of building us up in Christ, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. In other words, God says he's given you his son and he has built and coalesced this group called the church around the world in order that the church might have boldness and access with confidence through faith. Boldness and access with confidence. That means that God is doing things and God intends to do more things and God intends to do more things with you than you understand. So you have permission to be bold. You have permission to call out to him in confidence. You have access with confidence through faith in him. Jesus knows your name. When you say Jesus, he recognizes your voice. He intends for you to recognize that your eternal life is safe and secure with him. By Christ, you are seated with Christ. So through faith in that assurance, through that promise, you now have access and boldness. God does not intend for you to simply build a little kingdom here on earth. As important as food, shelter, and clothing may be to all of our lives, that is not what we were made for. Case in point, that's why much of the world doesn't live in 
houses like we live in, or drive what we drive, or eat what we eat. Much of the world lives in dirt. They live in slums, or at least things that are slumish. They live in faraway places, and they they do faraway things far away to us. And yet, the same God who loves me and me and my world loves you and your world loves them in their world, and you have no more access, no more confidence, no more boldness than they do. The same Jesus who knows you knows them. The same Jesus who loves you loves them. And the sooner we realize that everything we have is all of Him. It is His grace, not simply to pad the walls and give us comfort in this life, but to actually use our lives as a platform for advancing the cause of Christ and the name of Christ and the glory of Christ through the church. Or else, why die? Go away to a better place if this is all there is. If you're living for this, well, you're already miserable. I don't have to tell you. Because this stuff just rots. This stuff just breaks. This stuff just, you just got to have more and more and more and more insurance to keep us from not having any trials or tribulations or sorrows or difficulties. By the way, I'm I'm for insurance. I'm not against insurance. Don't think God's against insurance either, by the way. Church has insurance. We're going to have insurance. As long as there are people like you that will sue us, we will have insurance. And yes, we have been sued by church members. All that brings us to this paragraph. That was about 30 minutes of introduction. Here's the stuff. Verse 14, chapter 3. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. I pray. From whom every family in heaven on earth is named. Every family. Every family. You know why you exist? Because God put you here. You know what God's doing in your life? More than you know. You know what God's up to in your life? More than you know. From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So this is what we would expect from the apostle thus far. He is turning to prayer. And he reminds the Ephesians and our own hearts this morning that Paul is praying for strength. Do you see it here? Verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened. 
His prayer is that you be strengthened with power in your inner being, not in your outer muscles. He's not looking at your workout schedule. He's rather interested in your inner being. If I were to ask you, which would you prefer to be? A person of weak bones and muscles, but a strong inner being? Or the reverse, a person who is physically strong and vibrant and robust, and yet has the inner constituency of a jellyfish. Well, of course you don't want to be that guy. Of course you want to be the person who is strong, strong in the ways of God, in the thinking of God, in the attitudes of God, in the knowledge of God, in the behavior of God. You want to be that person. So Paul says, my prayer for you, dear Ephesians, is that you be that person, that you be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. Power. We've seen this word power before in chapter 1. He mentions this power, verse 19, chapter 1. What is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? According to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead, seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all authority, power, rule, and dominion, and above every name, etc. In other words, God has demonstrated His power. How powerful is God? Well, he, first of all, He's powerful enough to create the world. That's above average. He's powerful enough to sustain the world. That too is above average. He's powerful enough to raise the dead. In this case, his own son raised him from the dead. And his prayer in chapter 1, now his prayer again in chapter 3 is, you need to know this power. You need to know who you're joined to. You need to know whose throne room you're seated in. You need to know the one who knows your name. My prayer is for strength for you to plug into, clue into this power in your inner being that your inner person is strong. Daniel may be in the Old Testament as good an example as any. Strong inwardly. Taken as a child to Babylon, raised, as it were, in the palace company of the king. God had his hand upon Daniel's life. Daniel was strong. We know he's strong because he prayed and 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 he prayed. He prayed so much that when they passed a law prohibiting his prayer, he kept praying. Why do you do things for God when the legal authorities threaten your life? Why do you do that? Because you are strong. You are strong not because you were born strong or because you made yourself strong, but because you are plugged in to the one who is strong. That you have been strengthened with power in your inner being. So Paul prays for strength with power. And he prays on two 
battle fronts, or if you will, two expressions. And here they are in the middle of this paragraph, verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That your faith be strong. That your faith be strengthened with power. That you might have a strong faith. We might ask the question, what exactly is faith? Hebrews 11 tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things you can't see. I know this is so, even though I can't see it. I believe this is so, even though I can't prove it. It is the assurance and conviction of things hoped for and unseen. That's what faith is. Faith, said another way, is merely believing what people tell you, even though you don't have any other form of guarantee regarding that which they've told you. Now, in our case, we do. We have ample evidence to validate our faith. And yet, you must have eyes to see. The Spirit must work to make that connect to that. But the entire book of 1 John is an evidence of the work of God. In fact, turn there with me if you would. 1 John chapter 1. Verse 1. Notice how John begins this. He's going to say, I'm in charge of evidence. Here's our evidence. Verse 1. That which was from the beginning which we have heard. Now, there's evidence. I heard him. Which we have seen with our eyes. That's evidence. I've seen him. Which we looked upon and have touched with our own hands. That's evidence. I have touched him. I have heard him, seen him, touched him concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, meaning demonstrated, explained outwardly. We were able to view it see it. The life was made manifest. We have seen it, testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father was made manifest to us. He was with God, but he came to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. We're writing these things so that you will know we have seen him, heard him, touched him. We know that he has come from the Father. He has demonstrated by means of these miracles, these signs, these testimonies, these witness experiences that we have. I am an eyewitness to this, and I write to you now, I believe it. What about you? So what is faith? It is believing the promises of God. It is believing the truths of God. It is hoping in the promises of God. It is clinging to the assurances of God. In our own passage here in Ephesians, the Bible says that we are seated at the right hand of Father, of the Father. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you're seated with Christ? Do you believe that you're sealed with the Holy Spirit? That no one can pluck you from the Father's hand. Do you believe these things? Well, if you do, that's called faith. That's called believing. But most of the world rejects these truths. 
They mock these truths. They suggest that Christian people are weak or ignorant or gullible or naive or just downright wrong. And of course, in many parts of the world, they respond with violence. And in every part of the world, they respond with condescension, persecution. They won't have anything to do with you. They'll take their business somewhere else or they'll reject your morality or mock your morality or even punish your morality. Why? Because you represent, listen, you represent an authority that their authority is warring against. So, your enemy is my enemy. And your friend is my friend. I want to assure you, friend, that Paul prays for strength, and that strength needs to begin, first of all, in your confidence by faith. (laughs) Today is October 31st. The choir has sung of Luther's stand before the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire in 1521. I wonder if you were brought before the ruler of the only world you knew who had authority to condemn you, to banish you to the gallows. Would you stand against the emperor? It's easy to say, sure, 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 sure. I would, I would. Because I'd have some people there with me. Well, in Luther's case, he did not. He was compelled to stand alone. Nonetheless, he did. It's the same witness we've seen throughout the Old Testament. Hebrews chapter 11 has the roll call of faith and all of these men and women who stood with God. When push came to shove, they believed, they believed, they believed, they believed. I think again of The Babylonian experience, the three Hebrew men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the king mocked them and said, I'm going to throw you in to the furnace and we'll see if your God protects you. And of course, their response, I have oft quoted, is he's not duty bound to save us. He's not obligated to save us. In other words, his saving us doesn't prove that our faith is true. There are people today who say, well, I prayed, I asked, and God did not. Therefore, I reject God. Because if God were God, he would let me be God. You got that logic figured out? If God were God, I would make a request and God would give me what I want, what I believe is wise, what I believe is right. If God were God, he would let me be God. And so because God won't let me be God, I reject God. And I make myself God over it all. Well, it turns out, friend, you already were. We just now had the final exam. You reject God. But his prayer in verse 17 is that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. How do you know 
you're a follower of Christ. Well, the first test here is you must believe. Your heart must believe. Your conviction must believe. Now, he doesn't mean the physical organ heart, right? We all know when I say I love you with all of my heart, I don't mean my pumping organ in here. I mean the seat of my emotions. I mean the place of my affections, the place of my will. That's clearly not my heart, but it communicates. I love you with all of my heart, and I want to believe with all of my heart. He says here, I want you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your heart, in your inner being, through faith. He wants your faith to be stronger than it is right now. We live increasingly in a world that's going to try, 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 try to bruise your faith, to defeat your faith, to discourage your faith. That is not a new strategy. It may be new to you, but it's not new to God. And the purpose of the church is to gather his people together so that we might together help one another stand firm. Help one another to go deeper into greater faith, greater hope, greater confidence, greater assurance, greater conviction in things we can't see, but things that we believe. We want together to draw strength from each other. And God intends that when more and more and more and more people gather together in His name, He is glorified. We understand that. Somebody walks in and they're alone. You say, well, he's alone. Somebody walks in and he's got a friend. You say, well, there's two of them. Somebody walks in and they got a posse. (laughs) And you start asking the question, well, who is that guy? I mean, there's 10 people gathered around that guy. Who is that guy? Let's just assume it's bigger than that. Somebody shows up. They got 40 people, 50 people, 100 people, maybe 500 people singing their praises, talking about how wonderful they are, how great they are, doing everything they tell them to do, everything they want them to do. Sounds like a church, doesn't it, with a single, solitary head. You see, church is really not a democracy. Now, we're a Baptist church, so we practice democratic voting. But we appeal to Christ to give us grace to know his will and to do his will together. But it's not a true democracy. That's a mob. We don't follow the mob We follow the Savior. We believe in Him. And we trust Him. And we take Him at His word. But that's only the first half. The second half is that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend. There's that word strength again. Strength to comprehend with all the saints. What is the breadth, length, height, depth, and to know the love of Christ that's greater than knowledge. That you be rooted and grounded in love. Rooted and grounded. He uses that same phrase in Colossians chapter 2, 
verse 7, regarding Christ. Therefore, verse 6 rather, Colossians 2, 6, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving, rooted and grounded in love. How important is it for us to be the purveyors of love, to be those who are not only committed to love for ourselves, but committed to helping others love? Well, of course, we need no greater example than 1 Corinthians 13. You would expect us to go there, hear these words. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. By the way, somebody comes along and speaks an angelic tongue, that would get my attention, right? He would say, that's a VIP. That's a, he, I don't know who he is, but he's a pretty big deal. He's got angelic words. But the Bible says that if he doesn't love, he's a zero. If I have prophetic, prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am again nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver my body to be burned, that would be a pretty sizable commitment. But have not love, I gain or profit nothing. He goes on. And tells us how important love is. His prayer for the Ephesians and our prayer for one another is that we would love and that we would understand love in ways that we have never understood love. There is a depth of love we don't know. There is a height of love we don't know. There is a length of love and a breadth of love that we don't know. There is a love of Christ that we have never known. But Paul's prayer is, I pray you know it. I pray you understand what I mean when I say love your enemies. I pray that you understand what I mean when I say turn the other cheek and let them strike that one also. I pray that you understand what I mean when I say guard your tongue and don't gossip and don't slander. Should you offer praises to God and criticisms of people from the same mouth? The Bible says no. I trust that you understand the strength of the power of the love of Christ, which is different than anything we've ever known. And how are you, friend, going to find that love? outside of the church? Are you going to go to some restaurant and find that love? You're going to go to your favorite big box store and find that kind of love? You go to your favorite beach or mountain vacation and find that kind of love? Are you going to go to work and find that kind of love? You're going to go to school and find that kind of love. You're going to go home and sit in your recliner and watch more and more and more and more and more and more and more television 
and find that kind of love? No, friend. You're not. And every last one of us know that we're not. But Paul prays for a power to so overcome the church that they dive deep into greater faith and greater love. Because this is the measure of the strength of a church. It's the measure of the strength of a Christian. The Bible actually says it explicitly in Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, verse 5. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. By faith, we wait for the hope of righteousness. You know, even the return of Jesus requires faith. You believe Jesus is coming again? Why do you believe that? Because he said so. You believe what he said? Yes, that's called faith. So we even, by the Spirit, have faith to believe in the hope of the return of Christ. For, verse 6, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision, that's Jewish people, nor uncircumcision, that's whether you're, that's a Gentile, that's everybody else, counts for anything. That's keeping the law, in other words. In other words, for keeping the law is not faith. What matters is faith working through love. This is the point, isn't it? The Bible was given so that we might be people of faith who love. People of faith who, who show the nature and character of God, which is love. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. And who are we? We are sinners. And Christ gave himself for us. He who knew no sin became sin so that we through him might become the righteousness of God. This is love. When we were unlovely, Christ loved us. And he bought us by his own blood so that we might be safe and secure in him. Paul prays for strength that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith and that you be rooted and grounded in love. But notice how he ends and we'll be done. To him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church. How much power do you think God has dedicated to this? Well, most of us can remember the failure of the power grid recently, several months ago. Texas was hard hit during the winter and the whole state had to shut down. A bunch of argument and finger pointing about the failure of the power grid. And the 
rationale or the explanation was, you know, well, we have to judiciously allocate power here, allocate power there, and so forth, and then who's the arbiter of who gets power and who doesn't. If you live in many of the third world countries, they have these rolling brownouts where they assign power to the grid at certain places, certain times you can do things at certain hours, and other times you're just in the dark, et cetera, et cetera. We, we're familiar with that kind of reality. I would ask you this question. Do you think God... Do you think God has a finite supply of what's necessary for you to be faithful? God can only help you a little. God can only help you at these times. God can only help you in these circumstances. You think that's God? No, you don't think that. No, you don't think that. You can't think that. Because that's not very helpful. It's not very comforting. And on top of that, it's a complete lie. It's not true. What is true is the power of God is so great. The power of God is so great to help you grow in faith and grow in love that you can't even ask enough. Your category for asking is minuscule compared to the reservoir of his power. How committed is God to his church? Yeah. That committed. We don't suffer for the lack of anything we need. We have a God and a Savior and a Spirit who is in us every moment of every day. And it's time to live with boldness and with confidence because we have access to the power. We are his church. Let's keep our foot on the gas. Look into Christ. Pray with me. Father, thank you that you are so rich and so generous, so kind so forgiving, so loving. Thank you. You've given us everything we need and you give it generously beyond what we can ask or think. Give us faith, give us love and help us to be the people of Almighty God. To go and do and serve and go and do and serve and go and do and go and do and go and do and go and do and let us do it again because our God has all the power. Lord, thank you. Our lives are not wasted. Our future is safe because our God is in charge. 
Show us the glories of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.